I became fascinated with looking at things where they fall in a, for lack of a better word, on a timeline. That's serious stuff that we just talked about. I'm trying to be comic relief, so I'm going to move away from it right now. We need markers to remember what God has done in our lives. Uh, here we go. Here we go. I'm glad I'm around somebody to make fun of. <laughs> because what you see when you begin to look at history is that we're all connected. It's good stuff. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Featuring Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Rains Jr., along with producer Wes. Thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody. I'm back. It's Frank Rains Jr., and I'm the host of History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. And, you know, you wouldn't be hearing this if it wasn't for producer Wes, who is almost always here most of the time, even if it's just physically. You know, and then we wouldn't have this great content that you're listening to without Angie Ferris. Dr. Angie Ferris <laughs> is with us today again in episode 47. Angie, welcome to episode 47. Thank you, Frank. So glad to be here. I'm glad you are here too. Um, well, it's just, it's been forever since we got together. It's been so long. Been so long. You know, it seems like just a few minutes ago. Seems like it. Um, we're we're excited that that uh, we've got this many episodes. I can't believe forty seven. Yeah, I'm. I've got some thoughts about when we hit fifty. Hmm, have a party. Yeah. Well, just some ideas. Yeah, I think we're going to have really some. New, party. You know, we're going to hit fifty right about the time we hit our one year anniversary. Okay. Yeah, I think which is kind of cool because fifty-two weeks in a year. Yeah, we took off December. I think we're going to be a little, yeah, right about the time. Not exactly, but almost. Wow, cool, cool. And I want to do. I'm I'm going to talk about this more. Um, you know, I've seen we've gotten some more social media activity. Um, that's it's gonna it's gonna blow up. And did we did we talk about? Have we talked about any interesting things that have happened that we haven't talked about yet in our lives? Um, trying to think, if there's anything going on with me? Um, things are going pretty well. I haven't there hadn't been a lot of sickness going around lately? Yeah, that has become a little bit better. That's good. Um, has become a little bit better. Yeah, we went good. we went antiquing over Valentine's weekend. That was fun. We don't get to do that very much. You were t- you were mentioning to me off uh, mic when we weren't recording about doing a little shopping for a side table. Yeah. So I needed a side table for uh, one of the bedrooms. Anyway, there's a couple of options. I could take a table I had, put it in the spot, and get a new table for the other. Anyway, I ended up buying this little. Mid-century modern side table with a little shelf on it, and it's really nice. I was kind of excited. Yeah, it's kind of what I got. Got that set up. Um, well, there's gift bags in the in the studio. Mystery bag, a mystery bag. Now it's time for a mystery, mystery bag. There's two little red gift bags. We, we we talked about them in episode 46. Maybe I'm sure the listeners are only listening to this episode, so they could be like, what is in the bag? They're only like maybe four by six or something. They're four by six would small. be about right. Um, little pur- red gift bags with some purple pur- grass inside. Purple, yeah. And uh, they're for the studio. They're for the studio. And could it be uh, air fresheners? No. Well, then I guess we don't need that. Could they be, am I guessing? Is that what we're doing? Or yeah, we're sure. Go ahead. Guess. A candle? No, they relate to uh, something we talk about a lot. Michael Jackson? No. Elvis? Mm-mm. The Bible? Mm-mm. Something we talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. That's in the studio? No. The studio really. doors, the red door, no. the stickers? Something we talk about a lot. Uh, relates talk- to the last podcast we've ac- actually named, the last episode we actually named, which I think was... They have to do with Star Wars. They have to do with Star Wars. Yeah. I'm excited for the studio. There's one thing that has some Star Wars in here that we've talked about on the podcast, the Stormtrooper. Oh, yeah. It's right over there. You can't see. It's probably laying down. I've seen him before. Yeah, I can't see him from where Um, I'm sitting now. So I should get into it. You want me to give one to Wes? Sure. But you should do them one at a time. 
So Frank has moved his mic so that he can get that. I don't know which one is which, so who's going first? You well, just, Wes doesn't have a mic. Yeah, so you describe what Wes is doing, and then you do well, yours. I, you, because you can oh, see Okay, him. so Wes is taking out the confetti, the purple confetti, and he's pulling out a little package, and he's laughing. It's an action figure. Who is it? Princess Leia. Princess Leia action figure. Princess Leia action figure. And Leia has joined the studio to represent the Republic. To represent the... So who do you think's in your bag? I bet it's Darth Vader. No. No. It's by representing the Empire. Could it be the Emperor? We've talked about him several times, yes. The Emperor. Yeah. Um... Oh yeah, it is the emperor. It's it's the emperor. Uh, what's what's this one's name, Wes? Palpatine. Palpatine. Yeah, and this it's is from, most... from McKay's, <laughs> which I find how they just said, "Hey, let's throw these into a bag." Yeah, I like the, it. The though. nice ones were in bags. The other ones were like all in piles. Emperor Palpatine. Is this the one? Yeah, I think he is. It looks like his his awful. Well, eyes. he's the one that is in most of like yeah most of them. Yeah, I don't. He wasn't in the last three. I don't think. Yeah, no. But I'm opening him up. Wow, and you know that they have these little holes in their feet because you can put them on stands. Oh, because I have several action figures. Yes, this is great. This is when he goes strike me down with hate. Your unlimited. Oh. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. We're going to enjoy. We're going to find a place for these. So McKay's is fun. Wes, have you been there? Uh, a while ago, yeah. Do you know they have all kind of electronic equipment? Mm -hmm. I need to go back. Yeah, because I was looking at that. was going, I don't know if any of this stuff is good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he took his hood off. Palpatine got a bald head. <laughs> He looked really scary. Do you know that this actor, though, has been, I think, in all the movies? Really? I think he's this so, actor has oh, been in... He has the scariest eyes. When I think in that in that action figure, he's got the big red under his eyes, doesn't he? God, he looks so awful. I think he actually... I think he actually may be in all nine movies. Wow. I think he was a younger... Obviously, he was young in the 70s. I think he was a different character. Yeah. Like just a soldier or something, like in the first one. And uh, I don't know. I'm going to look it up. Um, but uh, here, Wes, I'm going to let you hold that and we'll find a place for him. Awesome. That was a great. That was a great. Uh, I just thought they were very apropos for our little. Very apropos. You must say, sir. It's very decent, I must say. <laughs> when well, you chalk up here like this and then it gets down low. It's not that low, though. It's no, not gravelly. I'm, I'm not talking. I'm, it was started to be uh, Ed Grimley. Yeah, but then it became Jiminy Glick. Oh, okay. Sorry, Jiminy Glick. You'll tell me what is the, what's your big beef with the Nazis? <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> That's what he asked uh, Mel Brooks. So tell me what is your big beef with the Nazis? <laughs> anyway, Jiminy Glick. Um, well, that was great uh, kickoff to uh, episode forty-seven of History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. and uh, um, So what was the name of 44? We haven't named it. Oh, 43. No, 40, no it was 44. It was episode 44. Oh, it was 43. No? Yeah. Oh, we haven't named 44. It was episode Rice. 43. Uh -huh. It was episode 43, An Empire Within the Empire. A Rebel, Rebel Empire, Empire Within, within the, the Empire. Empire. Yeah. I don't yeah, know if the cool. podcast shows it, but when I named it, I wanted the, it to be in Roman numerals. I think it did. I think it, it did. The social media analyst or whatever she is didn't pick up on that. But anyway, yeah. Oh. Or or she didn't have room for it. I think that's really what it was. <laughs> Sorry. But the but the Roman numerals were intentional. Yes. <laughs> he just did that, and I didn't know where it was coming from. And that door opened, and I'm like, what is going on? Boom, <laughs> <laughs> boom. Oh, yes. Well, Exciting uh, things coming. Kind of makes me want to dial it up. Dial it up? Dial up the movie and start watching it. Oh, wow. Yep. Yep. There's going to have to be some texting communication coming to me if that person wants to communicate with me right now. Because we're recording. We are. We're yeah. live. We're live. So, um, 
McKay's was a good trip. You had some good stuff happening there. We did. We had a lot of fun. I did. Oh, I found some a, a puzzle. And anyway, it's fun. Well, all right. Um, and well, some books. Lots and lots of books. I haven't been out there in a long time. I kind of want to go back. And I do need some. Sometimes I'm looking for some uh, technical equipment, some electrical equipment. I just a bought lot. a new. Uh, not a new. I bought an old tuner for the stereo. Um. But McCabe's would have been a good place to look for that. They have a lot of, looks like all ages of kinds of things. And then, of course, lots of DVDs and LPs. And they had all these comedy DVDs. A whole, I mean. You mean like stand up? Yes, like tons of stuff. Like they have puzzles. We were talking about game night, lots of puzzles. It was really pretty cool. Puzzles? So, yeah. Um. So, but stand-up comedian DVDs. Yeah, I said saying? puzzles. I meant game boards. They had lots of board games. Board games. Board games, card games, puzzles, DVDs, toys, electronic equipment, and then books and books and books and books and books. Yeah, it's a neat place, and I, you know, I know that there's more than one location, but I I don't know if they're outside of Tennessee. I don't know. I've heard people talk about it. whatever. It's. Whatever, y'all cool don't place. worry about it. Don't worry about it. Also a place you might want to wear a mask. Tim and I have discovered that these masks are very handy when you're in antique stores and old bookstores because you don't sneeze and get all congested when you leave from breathing all the dust. It's a good point. So a good point. we go in, weren't wearing a mask. We're like, oh, this would have been a good time to wear the mask. I'm like, you're talking about this is making me want to go to one like right now. I'm sorry. Well... So tell me about what we're going to talk about in 47. So we're moving on. We're going to we're going to start discussing more of the implication of this new church and state relationship in Nicaea after and Nicaea. The, the Council of Nicaea. Yeah. Council of or at? I think it's been said both. Council of Nicaea. Uh, I'm I'm multitasking, so I want you to dig into 47 because I'm going to bring a little something extra to the podcast if you can let me multitask. Okay. okay. So so we start by saying a decisive corner had been turned in church history. So imagine yep. yourself walking down the church history path, and now we have turned a decisive corner. Once Constantine began to act on behalf of the church, not just the state, and once his successors began simply to assume that imperial rule had something to do with the church, right? So the right? Well, the church had left behind the conditions of its first three centuries. Once Constantine began... Meaning, to, meaning let me just fill in the subtext. It had left behind the conditions of its first three, first three centuries, meaning persecuted, scattered... And able to act independently. Not yeah. scattered, necessarily. Well, I mean, like meeting... Okay. Having to meet in secret. Yeah, that's what, that what you mean. That's what I meant. Yeah. And that was only dependent on the current time and what emperor or what local authority felt. But some, but you always had to be aware of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so once that had happened, and then that's an interesting thought that the successors simply assumed that imperial rule had something to do with the church. Now, they're, not to get off on a sidetrack, because I don't know all the details about this, but in reading, there is an emperor that comes shortly after Constantine. I don't think immediately after, because Constantine's sons were immediately after but the emperor that comes shortly after him that says, no, let's do away with this Christianity stuff and tries to reinstitute paganism and fails. Okay? But after that, there was never an attempt. And it was assumed by following emperors that that automatically meant you took on a role in the church too. Okay. Okay, you see what I mean? So, so if you're going to be a part of the empire... You, you had something to do with the church. Right. So the, the church had left behind those conditions of the first three centuries. And we saw how the church grew during those centuries... And was thriving, was pushing back against heresy, working on doctrine and defining what orthodoxy was. So, when a ruler publicly acknowledged the centrality of the church to all of life, which Constantine and his followers did. When you say words like centrality. That's, that the church was gets, at the center. It gets my attention. Of all of, oh, well. I'll just start calling out centrality when I think that you're no, laying just, it on I the can scope. just tell that you're reading that. Not that, not that it's not a word that you would say. Yeah. But I like the, I like what it means. Yeah. Ruler publicly acknowledged the centrality of the church to all of life. It was difficult for the church not to respond 
by assuming that it had a vitally important role to play in this life as well as for the life to come. Let that sink in for a minute. Say it again. So once the ruler said, acknowledged publicly that the church was central to life, to all of life, then it was difficult for the church not to respond by assuming that it had an important, a vitally important role to play in this life as well as in the life to come. So it starts affecting how, not that our faith wasn't affecting how we live this life, but the idea that now you have this ruler that's putting this out there and emphasizing this. Whether you want to live it or not. You've, you've well, it's got making some... more, more, as much focus on the life we're living here as on what's to come in the next life. Right. Okay. Much good came out of this adjust, adjustment, but the cost was also high. Much good came, but the cost was also high. All right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to be talking about some of that high cost. Nicaea set Christianity on a course that it has only begun to relinquish, and that only begun to relinquish, and that only reluctantly over the past two or three centuries. 200, 300 years. Say that again. Nicaea set Christianity on a course that it's only begun to relinquish. This relationship between church and state. And that only reluctantly, because we're going to hear as we move up much later down the line, how reluctantly that moving away from that idea was. And that's only happened over the last two or three centuries. I don't know... I can't remember if this book was published before or after the turn of the century. I think it was a little bit after. So I think it would have been, I think it was like 2010, 2012, something like that. But three years before, 300 years before 2000 was 1700. Yeah. So only over the past two or three centuries have we begun to reluctantly relinquish the course that started at Nicaea. And why do you think we've relinquished that? Well, that's what we'll talk about when we get there. That doesn't sound like a good thing. Well, as we oh, talk the about and state. the church and state, as we talk about that, as we said, there were good things coming out of it, but it also came at a high cost. Yeah, I see. That course of be that course that was set was at Nicaea was the addition of concerns for worldly power to its birthright concern for the worship of God. So the church was always concerned for the worship of God and added on to that its concern for worldly power after Nicaea. The distinction between church and world that Nicaean Christology preserved was, in fact, compromised by the very events that led up to the declaration of Nicaea. The distinction between church and world that Nicaean Christology preserved, so the, the, the creed the definition of who Christ was that came out of Nicaea was describing the distinction between the, the church and what they believed and the world did not believe, you know, this is who we are as mm. Christians, separate from everybody else that doesn't believe this, okay? Yeah, yeah. So that distinction was in fact compromised by the events that led up to the very declaration because... The emperor called the council, and it left them married in a way to the state. So it was like a distinction and a compromise at the same time. Yeah. Kind of yeah. crazy. In this sense, it left a dual legacy of sharpened fidelity to the great and saving truths of revelation. Okay? The definitions in the creed, the statements that the creed says, sharpens our commitment to the great and saving truths of of revelation on one side, that's one legacy it left, and also of increasing intermingling of the church on the world. That's the other legacy it left. So that's like crazy. I mean, what I mean to me is like, that's just like, wow. It helped define things as they, as, and give us an orthodoxy that we've held to for the 1700 years since then. And at the same time started this relationship that we've only in the last 300 years begin to reluctantly relinquish. I see. Yeah. 
both of those are coming out of the same yeah, thing. And so it's just, it's kind of crazy how it, it happened so long ago and it was so pivotal and it's still, it's not like, it's it's one thing that happened over 1800 years or it, it, I don't know if I'm doing a good job of describing what I'm saying. Like it's a moment in time it's a that moment affected in time everything that after affected that. everything after that. That people don't talk about that. No. And don't understand, you know, we living in the time that we live don't understand how and when the church married the state, for a colloquial phrase, and why it lasted so long and how it affects today. Thus, here we are again. So I'm wondering how it, I know we'll get there, but you know this country was founded in sev- in the mid 1700s, 1750, 1760, 70s, 80s, yeah. So late 1700s. So they addressed it mm-hmm. in some way. I mean, I'm not going to talk about it now, but it, yeah, it has been addressed. Yeah, and there's roots of where they got the idea to address it too. It wasn't original. Well, that's that's I shouldn't speak to that because you can decide when we get there how original it was. Um, so the Christian, so this becomes the Christian Roman Empire in effect, which was the imperial state becomes the enforcement agency of Christian orthodoxy. So we talked about how Constantine enforced it, like you can sign it or your exile. Yeah, the imperial state enforced it. Yeah, and so not just Nicaea, but it eventually. Um, I'm trying to see when this was. I don't have, I don't know, but eventually, hmm, by later, I think it was in the early in the fifth century, it was actual uh, Christianity become the official state religion of Rome. So that ends up happening. In effect, it's acting that way now, right? Mm. So this is back to Eusebius, and this is in the book, uh, The Church, Church History in Plain Language. He says, the church historian Eusebius probably spoke for the majority of Christians when he represented the emperor as the ideal Christian ruler and envisioned the beginning of a new age of salvation. He was excited about it. The new opportunity to preach publicly and to develop to develop unmolested surely meant that God had a new and greater mission for the church. So now we can be out in the open and we can do what we need to do and preach and share and grow. And so God's got a new and greater mission for the church. The divinely ordained moment had arrived for the infusion of public life with the spirit of Christianity. The empire seemed to carry the providential task of preparing the way for Christianity to fulfill its mission to all men. Now with Constantine, the conversion of the world seemed near. And you can see that, how at that time they would expect that. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. Now it's legal and we can go. The advantages for the church were real enough, but there was a price to pay. Constantine ruled Christian bishops as he did his civil servants and demanded unconditional obedience to official pronouncements, even when they interfered with purely church matters. So if he decides to take an opinion about something that's a church matter and tells the bishop how he should handle it, the bishop doesn't have an option not to handle it that way. No, because he's in charge. Yeah. So that's pretty rough when when that comes across. Well, the, I, have, I have thoughts. The preservation is being held captive to the... The purpose is being held captive to the preservation. So let me ask you this question. As we pause here for a second, and not really pause and pause in the pause in the history, but let me ask you this. So when Constantine called the Council of Nicaea, and then here we are with a combination of church and state. In your opinion, and lasting for seventeen hundred years in 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 that capacity, I guess. In your opinion, was that a good thing, or was that? Causing more problems than oh man, there's just so much debate about that. It's kind of, I, I guess, in my opinion, it's like, well, it is what it is, and I, and I don't mean that as a cop out. There were a lot. I don't know what it would have been like had it not happened. So I can hear, sit here and say, in a way, it would have been much better to not have the state involved in making decisions for the church and to not have confusion in the mind of the people of do we listen to the emperor or do we listen to the bishop. 
or how come the emperor and the bishop aren't saying the same thing or even to say what does god say about this you know mm -hmm. and then you put the former emperor worship in there that gets it a little weird too you know so you can say in a sense it would be good not to have that confusion but i don't know what it, what christianity i don't i don't know how it would have played out had it not happened so i can't really make a decision it is what it is i think it's important to evaluate the strength and the weaknesses of it mm -hmm. yeah and and to be aware of that and i i don't know that we would have as clear a definition or our founders would have been able to define separation of church and state had we not gone down this path. I don't know. So I guess that's an interesting question for the listeners to listen to as we move forward to make that decision, you know, for themselves to say, how did this help and how did this hurt? Yeah. Okay, I was just, I was just, as I'm listening and wondering, I, I just wanted to make get your opinion on that. But I don't, I mean, I want to make sure we continue down the yeah. path we're talking about. So, counsel, anyway. Keep yeah. Going. So, here's another consequence or result that you might not think about. There were also the masses of people, the general man on the street, and other people who now streamed into the officially favored church. Prior to Constantine's conversion, the church consisted of convinced believers who were willing to bear the risk of being identified as Christian. Now there wasn't risk. There's no risk? Now many came who were politically ambitious. Oh, it's the emperor's church. It's the emperor's. Let's go join that. Yeah, maybe we can get a member of the country club. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> By the way. She yeah. gave me a, a very telling look. Religiously disinterested and still half-rooted in paganism. Mm. Now many came who were politically ambitious, religiously disinterested, not really interested yeah. in religion, and still half-rooted in paganism, but this was the thing to do. Yeah, This threatened to produce not only shallowness and permeation by pagan superstitions, so like it would water down faith because the people would not be as committed, so shallowness, and per permeated by pagan superstition because they're not really giving up their past gods. But it also, the secularization and misuse of religion for political purposes. So in that sense, it's a big negative to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and like Christianity, Jesus being faithful to God and not sinning so that he could save us cost him a lot. And then following Jesus cost. There's a payoff, but there's a cost. So to offer a route into the church that doesn't really cost anything... I mean, not that you have to pay something, but I'm, that you don't get that. I guess that's mm -hmm, what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. If you can just, if you don't understand that, then that makes so the idea if it's if it's a church that is, uh, um, if it, oh, that was a very distracting text. I shouldn't have looked at it. If it's a church that is is entered into with a cost and and you understand that it costs Christ something and it could cost you something to be a part of it in the sense of I'm choosing to follow God and to not necessarily follow the world, which is what the Bible talks about, that there's a difference there. Are you in your own self-interest, the interest of, of others, or are you putting God before everything else? And if there's that church and then you have a church where you can just you come because the emperor comes and it's just part of who we are and we're all required to be it, then it kind of takes away some of the meaning or it makes Which, the meaning harder to find. Well, would you say that may have been sometime in the last 10, 15 years that way here? Oh, I don't know about 10 or 15, but I think definitely in the last 100. Yeah. Or even, you know, we're here in the South and and you and I grew up in a much more, in a more rural South than what we live in now. Um, and the South was more rural in a way then. And so it was very much that I know 
when I was in high school, you went to – this is an example. I won't name places, but I was in a fairly large city in the South when I was in middle school and elementary school. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the few people of my friends. I was kind of with – sort of with the in crowd. I was one of the two or three that actually went to church in a large city in the South. Okay. Right, right. Then in high school, we moved to a small city. Right. And church was where everybody went on Sunday. Everybody. Yeah. So it was a. It was more of a of an isolation in the bigger city. Yeah, in the bigger city, it was a choice that you made that meant something. In the smaller city, you might be making it because it meant something, but you could be sitting on a pew with everybody else that was just there because it was Sunday, and that's where you went. The thing about that experience of being in two different churches in a period of time when I was in a really uh, important spiritual growth is I felt like that the truth I was experiencing was watered down because there were people. When you got to the new place, yeah. and everybody went to church. Yeah. Because that's just what you did, not because there was a choice yeah. that you personally made. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that about your experience. Yeah. And so that's like, that would be the case. It's like, okay, oh, we're thrilled. There's an emperor. We have all this opportunity to speak and to come out. But then I would think within a generation or two, all these, the the places are filling up with people that are still half-rooted in paganism, and they're really just coming because of the political benefit of being associated with the religion that's accepted. And and, um, yeah, it's surprising to me that it happened that early. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that that dates all the way back to then. Um, very interesting. Read that sentence again. This threatened to produce not only shallowness and permeation by pagan superstitions, but also the secularization and misuse of religion for political purposes. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I, I make an analogy. I mean, I know that we're... We're only in 350 A.D. or 70 or in, in the, we're in the fourth century. Yeah. But I can say today in 2022, 21, 20, whatever, you might go to a big church in, in our county for professional gain. Yeah. Or political gain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I know mm-hmm. people who were doing that. Yes, that's part of the deal. It's a place mm-hmm. to get to meet people, right? And get to know people. Mm-hmm. So I want to go to church where they go to church because I want to get to know them. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, it can become very political. And I think that's a big turnoff for a lot of people too. There might be people listening to this podcast say, yeah, and that's exactly why I'm not in church. Yeah. Right? So because um, their hypocrisy can be found there, can it not? Oh, yeah. And so that's why I like studying this because you can get to see. Well, there's only the there, roots. there's only one place that you can find hypocrisy, and that's when you go to a group that say they believe in a certain thing. Yeah. If you're if you're part of a group that doesn't believe in anything, there's not going to be any hypocrites. <laughs> Maybe so, but I think we all believe something. Yeah. Well, we do. Yeah. But yeah. If, but if you know what I'm saying, yes. it's easy to. So. Yeah, I totally get it. Okay, so we're beginning to see why the story of the church affects most, if not all, of the world today. Yeah. And we're just beginning to see that. So in that's, the fourth century. Yeah. With yeah. that move of the marriage of the church and state. So I want to kind of stop with, with that in the historical timeline and jump over to something else that also happened at the end of the fourth century, okay, that might not necessarily be, yeah, well, an event. You know, we talked about how, and I can't remember what the date on this was, but we've already talked about how the New Testament was circulating pretty much as it is by some of the second century, sometime in the second century. But the first time that there's an official, like a got the stamp of the official church on it, books of the New Testament was at the Synod of, oh boy, mm. the Synod of Hippo. It's not called Synod, it's called Synod. We, Producer West has had to step out for a minute, so we can't get the little pronunciation in our ears. <laughs> but I know. Anyway, that and it refers to the Synod of 393, which was hosted in Hippo in North Africa. 
For the first time, a council of bishops listed and approved a Christian biblical canon. That was the first time that a council of bishops listed and approved an official biblical canon that corresponds to the modern Roman Catholic canon while falling short of the Orthodox canon because it including the books classed by Roman Catholics as deuterocanonical books and by Protestants as the Apocrypha. Okay. Okay. Um, This canon did, so it... it, um, was not the same as the Orthodox canon. The canon was later approved at the Council of Carthage in 397, pending ratification by the church across the sea, which that is referred to as Rome. The church across the sea. Yeah. The canon was later approved at the Council of Carthage, which is in northern Africa, pending ratification by... So it was approved in Hippo, then in Carthage, and then pending ratification by the church across the sea, which was Rome. So that was in 393 to 397 that we get our official list of the 27 books that make up the New Testament. Well, I wonder why Constantinople wasn't involved in that approval. I guess it appears just wherever they decided to call the gathering got named after the place where it was. Okay. So it didn't always meet in the same place. But then, but the, but Different the church, hosts. It's kind of like the Super Bowl travels, you know. Yeah, but, but I know, but were you saying <laughs> that the church across the sea held more power than the other two? Or oh, just... that's a question to be answered in the future. Okay. Well, in yeah. this case, though, there were three locations. That there different council. So my Carthage. guess for that is that everybody couldn't come to <clears throat> Hippo, that it was like, okay, we're going to agree to it, and then we'll send it to these guys over here, and they agree to it, and then they had to send it to Rome to get them to agree to it. So that was it, it could be three different locations only because of Geography. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then another thing is um, toward the end of the fourth century, Bishop Damasus of Rome um, conscripted Jerome, who is now known as St. Jerome, who was the leading scholar of the period, to establish a standard Latin text of the books of the Bible. Now, the books were written in... If they were in the Old Testament, they were written in Hebrew, right? Mm-hmm. Many of the books of the New Testament, some were, most of them were written in Greek. There might have been parts that were Aramaic because that was the language that Jesus spoke. Um, I don't remember which parts. The are New which. Testament wasn't written in Hebrew. No, because by then it was after Alexander the Great, and everybody was speaking it was Greek. In Greek. Yeah, everybody was speaking Greek. Although there was still, uh, I've I've heard that Jesus spoke Aramaic, you know, that that was the language of that area. Um, But people knew Greek, and it was the majority of it's written in Greek, and we can get in the details. I don't know the details off the top of my head which book was written how. But none of it was written in Latin, and Latin was the language of Rome, and Latin was the language of the Roman church. So at the end of the 4th century, this bishop asked Jerome to establish a standard Latin text of the books of the Bible. Jerome's mandate was to render a new Latin Bible, the established canon of Holy Scripture, using sources as much of the original Hebrew as he could find for the Old Testament and the original Greek for the New Testament. Whenever possible, and that's important to think about, so he's looking for original copies, originals, as close back to the original as he can get, and mm-hmm. the Hebrew for a Hebrew Old Testament and a Greek New Testament. So we want to use the oldest copies he can find, right? Um, Wherever possible, Jerome worked from original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts available to him. The Greek exemplars available to him included the Septuagint, remember that? Mm -hmm. Which was translated from the Hebrew, and the translations from three ancients through origin. I don't know what that means. Jerome's work was completed by the early 5th Century. Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible became known as the Vulgate and henceforth was the only recognized version of the Holy Scripture by the Roman Church. So that was known as the Latin Vulgate Bible and was used for centuries. Okay, we don't get a translation and something into English until the invention of the printing press and around the 14, 1500s. Okay, so everything was in Latin. All the everything that happened in the church was in Latin, 
and the translation of the scripture was in Latin. So you had but to be when able. When was it in Greek though? Before that, up until then. Okay, so Old Testament was Hebrew, mm-hmm. New Testament was Greek, mm-hmm. and, and then and then the new. Then he translated them both into Latin. Okay, because people didn't speak Hebrew, and Greek was not the language anymore. Latin was. I'm sure there were still people who spoke Greek, but Latin was the language of the church. Okay, and so Latin, and we'll see why that then becomes anyway. As we move forward in history, that makes a difference. So Jerome was the first one to do that. And if I'm remembering right, I don't have it in my notes right here, but I'm pretty sure he couldn't even find Revelation. No, that's later. That was when the when it gets translated into English, they couldn't find a Greek copy of Revelation at that time. Yeah, so that's the Latin Vulgate Bible and done by St. Jerome. Vulgate. What does that come from? Oh, Vulgate or Vulgate is how you spell it. V U L G A T E. Vulgate Bible. Vulgate means the principal Latin version of the Bible, prepared mainly by St. Jerome in the late fourth century. Number two definition is common or colloquial speech. Okay, so Vulgate was a term they used, and now it's just attached to that. Yes. Common or colloquial speech. There we go. All right. So well, so you know, I've mentioned it on the on the podcast before about the tattoo I'm getting here, mm-hmm. and I was going to get it in Hebrew, and I think what I have drawn up is Hebrew, but now I'm like it needs to be Greek because it was first written down in Greek. Yeah, probably so. From Mark nine. Yeah, it's a good thing I didn't get that done recently. I'd have been upset. Yeah. So now I got to get it in Greek. Yeah. So. Okay, so just real quickly. I mean, we don't have that kind of time, do we, to look that up? Uh, just real quickly. Well, we'll have to. I looked it up on my phone, and I think what I have is in Hebrew. I don't think it's in Greek. And so I'm just going to see. No, I'm not looking at what it says. Yes, the mark was written in Greek. All right. Well, I'll figure it out. I think it's going to happen pretty soon. Oh, well, that's that sounds exciting. It, it could be the next time we come in here. Wow. Be right there. Wow. That's a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's actually now, how much have we talked about the Apocrypha? Not a lot. We did, we did bring it up. Okay. And it comes up again further down the road in history, but it is it's the books that are that seem to have been written during that period between the Testaments that got attached to the Septuagint. And then, so were, so, so uh, they became, they got circulated a lot with the Old Testament during the time of Jesus, okay? When they made this official canon, those books were included in the Vulgate, okay, as part of the Old Testament. But Jerome, I read some stuff that said Jerome argued not to include them for the reasons that get talked about later at the Reformation, that the Jews never quoted from them. The Jews never had them in their Hebrew copies. Mm-hmm. And so he argued, but I don't know if there was other bishops. That said, I can't remember who it was that talked him into including it, if it had to do with the emperor or bishop or who it was, but they got included. So I wanted to talk a little bit about which books are in which Bibles. So I've got, I've uh, given you a piece of paper there, and it has the Hebrew Bible and then a list of the books in the Hebrew Bible, the Orthodox Bible, which we haven't talked about the Orthodox Church yet, but um, it's the Eastern Church that will, in our next episodes, we'll begin to explain what that is. The Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible. So you can see which hmm. books are included and which books aren't by looking at the list. And then also you can see the order of them. So the Hebrew Bible is very much ordered in a completely different way. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then you can see how there in that middle, middle section of historical books in the Orthodox and the Catholic, that's where most of the books of the Apocrypha occur. Although down there at the bottom of the Orthodox Bible, they've got even more books. So where would I see the Apocrypha? Well, they don't 
like in the Catholic Bible, they land at the... See, they don't have these in the order. They have them like the law, the historical books. And so they're under the Catholic Bible, the historical books, Ezra, Nehemiah, I mean, not Ezra, Nehemiah, I Tobit, Judith. And the Maccabees. And the Maccabees and whatever that word is that we can... The Esther, Esther's the long... highlighted, yeah. Because it has a longer version. Okay, see, and you'll notice over there mm-hmm. on the Protestant list, it's the shorter version. So there's portions of Esther that are considered apocryphal. And the Orthodox has four Maccabees. Yes. Which sounds good right about now. I could go for a couple extra Maccabees. Yeah, you like those Maccabees. I know how that goes. Um, and then if you look over on the back, you'll find some more added in to the prophets that under the Catholic that are uh, under the Orthodox. Oh, yeah. They got Baruch. even more. Yeah, even more. Oh, and I've got a great – we're going to talk about, like I said, Orthodox will be coming up. I found a new book on that too. I'll well, I want to talk about the Orthodox, and I'm going to do it real quick right now. In this, on this paper in the Orthodox Bible, under the prophets, it's got Susanna. Oh, Susanna. Susanna. Oh, won't you? And Bell and the Dragon. Mm. Bell and the Dragon. So we'll learn about that. So tell me about, just real quick, high level. Again, I said it. Orthodox. Orthodox Christians. Yeah. Would they be considered Greek Orthodox Christians, or that's that, a that's a division of them They're, of the Orthodox yeah. Christians? But there's also Orthodox Jews. Yeah, Orthodox means standard of the canon of. You know, we talked about that Nicaea set the standard for Orthodoxy. Yeah, I understand what Orthodox means. Okay, so there would but be like when I pass a church in this town that says Orthodox Christian Church. I don't know how that's different than a Protestant church. Yeah, but that's what we're going to be talking about moving forward, and it has to do with history. And it's actually the next part that we'll get to in the next episode, or we'll start laying the groundwork for understanding what happened there. Because right now there's just one church. Yeah, and this piece of paper has four. Well, it has three churches and the Jews. Three churches and the Jews. (laughs) Right. So, so it has was it? <laughs> four cannons on there. <laughs> oh, I was watching a, uh, a a new show on on uh, Netflix. Yeah, has to do with three churches and the Jew and the Jews. Uh, and I'll <laughs> I'm just gonna say it on here. It doesn't matter. You can go on Netflix and watch it. Same media, you know, just another platform. But it was one of these little scenes, and uh, the guy's like, "Tell us a joke." And the guy goes, okay, these three Jews walk up. No, 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 no. That's inappropriate. Don't tell that joke. Okay. So there's these four Jews walk up. <laughs> that was his chains was to add another one, which obviously he didn't tell the joke and they shut it off, but that was a funny bit. Oh, my. Okay. So something else I thought I'd talk about here because there's not really a place where it comes up. But, um, well, it might later. I could fit it in there, too. Never, But that's a long time from now. So we'll go ahead and say it is to talk a little bit about translations. I think I had a little tirade on this before, about translations as compared to paraphrases, as compared to like a study Bible. Do you know what I'm talking about? A publisher versus a translation? Yeah, we've talked about it, but I don't know if, if I rec- remember you going on a tirade about it or something. But. Well, a lot of, yeah, I think you kind of called me out on some of it. The So a translation is where you take Obviously, just like you would think about if you have a translator app or you translate something, it's taking a um, taking the original language and translating it into a common language. But with every language, there are challenges. Are you going for an exact word for word or are you going for like the meaning of a sentence or are you going right. for like I have some friends who are missionaries and they're language translators. That's what they do is learn a new language and then learn to translate the Bible into that language. And so you've got to go for the meaning. You've got to understand the meaning of the scripture and try to communicate that with staying pretty close to the words as you can. So you're going to get a whole variety of translations. So I encourage people to look into that when you're looking at what Bible you're using. Are you using one that's trying to be written to be easily read, like for an elementary reading level? Or are you using one that's trying to be as word for word as possible? And where do you want to be on that thing? And and then any of those translations can be published by different publishers and have different names. So like we were talking about the Open Bible way mm-hmm. back when, or the New Inductive Study Bible, or 
the uh, I don't even know the promise that was a Bible that was at you know I haven't gone and bought a new Bible recently and looked at all the versions those aren't called versions the publishers and so so like a study Bible whoever's publishing that will have their own study notes in it and have their own perspective but then the translation will be a particular translation like the English Standard Version or the New International Version or the Common English Version or the, you know, it's going to have a, so that's different. Mm -hmm. Now, there's also a paraphrase. And a paraphrase, things like the message is a paraphrase. The um, the way was out back in the 70s and 80s. That was a paraphrase. And that's where usually a biblical scholar or maybe even a group of biblical scholars retell the story in their own words, trying to communicate the meaning the intent. in a very colloquial way. That was where I mentioned like reading about the casseroles, you know, <laughs> words that you wouldn't normally find in the scriptures that mm-hmm. come out in this colloquial way. But there's some value to reading that too to get kind of a a feeling for yeah. the genre and the meaning and all that. So that's some differences that this is a good point to talk about when you're looking at what Bible you want to go pick up and read. So go back to what you said, though, just as a kind of a to summarize. In three ninety seven, yeah, toward said, the very end of the fourth century, was our first collection in. in it was the first collection that was well. It was the first time that a official body said this is the 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 canon. Um, but it was as we talked about back in the second century, or maybe it was the early third. They. There was a list circulating like in a letter that made it evident that that they had been settled on those books for a while. This just made it official. And then round about the same time, within a few years, was when Jerome was asked to translate it into Latin, Mm -hmm. which then became the Bible that was used for centuries. So that's kind of a interesting, I think, an interesting thing to put in there. Now, are we at in in the timeline? Are we at right at four hundred? Right around there, yes. Are I there think, things that you need to go back and talk about in the three in the fourth century? Well, let me see. I'm looking ahead. I, that was all that I had over in my notes. We're going to talk about some geography things and some political things that are happening now in the late fourth century, and then move on from that. And in explaining those things, then we'll get to talking about the we'll we'll discover over an episode or two what the Orthodox Church is and what's happening there and why that's something to talk about. And we're beginning to move into what some people date the Middle Ages starting as early as five hundred. Wow. So we're pushing on out there. So there's if five so what's the end of the Middle Ages? Some people dated up as far as like 1500. Okay. But really, it's, it's, yeah. So a lot of people talk about the high Middle Ages and the early Middle Ages and the late Middle Ages and, you know, because it's a long time period and, and we'll see how the changes take place over that. But it's really, if you think that you're not interested in the Middle Ages, then you haven't heard about them much because there's a lot that really ties things together to help us understand. You can't understand what came after if you don't understand what came before. Yeah, well, I'm it's, interested in It's not about just it. a skip, so yeah. So to tie back to the beginning of the episode when we went and we got the action figure of the emperor. Yeah. The actor that played the emperor, emperor which is the action figure that, that I opened as a guy, as a... Scottish actor named Ian McDiarmid. Mm-hmm. And he was not in Return of the Jedi, obviously, because in Empire Strikes Back, he gets thrown by Vader over the thing. He wasn't in Star Wars, the first one, but it was in Empire Strikes Back. And then he went back and was Senator Palpatine, then become Emperor Palpatine in episodes one, two, three. Yes, that's what I'm remembering. So he was in Empire Strikes Back five. One, two, three, and then he's in episode nine, but he wasn't in seven or eight. Is he so, in nine as that character? I think so. I think he makes an appearance. I think, yeah. Um, but the uh, interesting thing is uh, on his resume, I think it was a movie, uh, I'll look here, I believe it's the movie um, 
It was in the 80s. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Steve Martin and Michael Caine. I think this actor played... Yeah, I was right. 1988. He played uh, the butler. And I remember watching it not too long ago going, wait a minute, that's Emperor Palpatine. <laughs> did those people butler. at Star Wars know that once they did that, they would forever be? Well, he did that, I guess, right after... Uh, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Empire Strikes Back was 1980. Yeah. I just thought of something I need to share. But it just so happens that today I have on my Star Wars socks. Wow. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. I should have said it has to do with your socks. Okay. So I skipped over this because I didn't, I didn't write it down. But I found it so interesting that, you know, we talked about the temple hasn't been rebuilt in Jerusalem because they don't have the land to build the temple and blah, blah, blah. Well, one of the things that this guy in the, uh, what's it? Rome and Jerusalem book talks about is he says that that there were all kind of that everybody was sacrificing to their God. So the idea of having a temple where these sacrifices took place like for the Jews was not unusual in the ancient world. What was unusual is that the Romans never let them rebuild it. Yeah. And and he talks about why, and it has to do a lot with the political machinations of these emperors that were around that time with Vespasius and Titus and the ones who came, Vespasian and the ones that came after there to um, to putting down the Jews. I'm not going to try to explain it all because I don't have it as well in my head to be able to explain it. But it was important that the defeated the Jews was seen as something that was good and that Jews were seen as something was bad for their emperorships and to play up their position in the empire, okay? Those victories over the Jews had to carry a lot of weight in because those were their big victories. So those Flavian emperors, emperors, that's like the Windsor family or the white, this is the Flavian family, family, played that up, and therefore they could not allow the Jews to be seen as a viable religion, a viable way to worship and mm -hmm. to have these, so they didn't let them rebuild the temple. And there's even a story. So then many years after that, like hundreds of years in different emperors, not totally hundreds of years, but under different emperors, there was an attempt to rebuild it. Um, there was an emperor who allowed them to start, but then he ended up dying before anything happened. But also one of the guys I was listening to was talking about how when they went to start it, there were stories. I heard two different stories. One was earthquakes that stopped them, and another one was like fire came up out of the ground and consumed them. And what made me think of that story was when you were we were talking about Star Wars and the characters, because the guy who was telling the story said, we didn't have Indiana Jones there to really know what happened. You know, like he could tell us what happened because he was kind of playing it off like that was a story. But I just thought that was kind of interesting. Like yeah. there was definitely the Christian message of the time was that God did not want that temple rebuilt. No. On purpose. Did not want it mm -mm. rebuilt. And so earthquakes and fire coming up out of the ground and whatever. And I just thought that was kind of. Are we going to interesting well, tidbit? Uh, yeah. Are we going to talk about what? Well, we well we won't talk about it because we've already passed that part. But you'll maybe find out what that was. No, I don't think I can find out. Those are just what people are saying. Like it's just like it's like it was reported at one time that this happened. Mm. Not like you know Indiana Jones wasn't there, so we don't know. Yeah, we can't maybe get him to tell us what happened. But, maybe he was. But well, another so like another author mentioned earthquakes and then said that it really didn't come through because the emperor who was supporting it died and the next one didn't, okay? Another author said this story about, hey, we don't really know what happened, but there's this story that there was even fire that came out of the ground, and he kind of told it like that. Not like, oh, this for sure happened, but there was this story that... But yeah. I just thought that was interesting that earthquakes and fires were even mentioned. Yeah, Stop. plus people dying. And yeah. Changing rule and just making sure it doesn't happen. Well, everything's connected, like we said from the very beginning. Everything's, Everything's connected. connected. I'm looking forward to uh, moving on down the connected road. It's kind of yeah. fun. I hope you guys are having fun. And hopefully the next time we're recording somewhere there, what was this, 47? Mm. 48, 49, 50? We'll have some new announcements to make and some new information to bring you about history through the eyes of faith. We'll push it in on our first anniversary. If you like it or even if you don't, go tell somebody else to listen to it. That's right. And follow us on Instagram at History Through the Eyes of Faith because we're actually getting regular posts up now. And right now we're on Facebook at One Thing Only. 
And they always say like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast, brought to you by One Thing Only. For more information and related content, head over to onethingonly.org and click on History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. There you will find related content as well as a way to ask questions and make comments. We want to hear from you. You can find us on all your streaming podcast platforms. Please rate and review. Thanks again.